0: This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Turn with me, if you would, to First Thessalonians chapter two. starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of great conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, So we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our heart. Let's pray. Father, you have um, entrusted your gospel to us. The words on the pages of Scripture have been entrusted to us. What shall we do with them? How might we hold those words? How might we keep those words? Father, I ask this morning as we look at uh, the scriptures, as we look at and discuss some theological uh, issues, Father, I I pray that uh, you find in the hour that we spend together here a way, a wisdom that has been entrusted to us throughout the ages to hold these things rightly and to cherish the sound doctrine that has been entrusted to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So if you saw the sign out there, you're in class this morning. This is a Reformed Theology 101 is what we're going to do. What is Reformed Theology? Does If you have a Reformed theological perspective, does that make you a Calvinist? Is being a Calvinist a good thing or a bad thing? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm not going to preach to you, I'm going to teach you this morning. I'm a better teacher than I am a preacher. And that's what I'm going to do here. There's three reasons why I think we ought to discuss this this morning. Let me uh, start off the first reason just by by telling you this. There's a conversation I've had for a long time. It's a conversation I have with myself. And I usually do great in that conversation. (laughs) Am I the only one in this room that has such conversations? I doubt it, okay? Sometimes, what, what provokes those kind of conversations, though? Usually, or one of the things that provokes the conversation that I have had in my head for years is when somebody says that I am a Calvinist or suggests in a pejorative kind of a way, in a critical kind of way, that I am a Calvinist. I am a Calvinist. And I want to, us to understand what that means in its right sense this morning, and I, I think there's a lot of things that need to be cleared up on about that. Um, so I've been preparing this sermon for many years. And as I've prepared it, and I think I've got this conversation down pat, I'm going to try it on you guys and we'll see how it goes. Calvinists, or those who hold a Reformed theological position, are uh, we are considered many times the black sheep of the Christian household. We are thought to have uh, drank the Kool-Aid or uh, taken some kind of a poison pill sometimes. To some people, uh, a Reformed theology is merely untenable. It's something that you just can't live with. Over the years in my life uh, as a Christian, and even in this church, for some of you who have been here for a while, we've had people in the church here, haven't we, that came and joined us and were in fellowship with us, and then all of a sudden somebody somewhere told them we were Calvinists and they shouldn't be worshiping here, or we had a reformed position and therefore they shouldn't be worshiping here. And so in my head, I always wish I could speak to that person and, and have a conversation, a logical, rational conversation about what's really in play here and what isn't. Or I would like to talk to the person who has told that person they shouldn't be here and say, can we talk about this? And so that's, that's some of what I would like to do this morning. The, the Reformed position that I'm going to posture to you this morning is, I would say, um, and has been for some time, the minority view. The majority view, especially in the United States, for some time has a whole different look at how the pages of Scripture should be interpreted. And I won't go into that view other than to tell you the Reformed view that we ascribe to here in this church um, has been around for a long time. It was, for the, the majority of history, the majority view And I am absolutely convinced by what I see, what I know, and what I read, that the Reformed theological view is coming back strong. Very strong. It's being taught in the seminaries, the great seminaries of our day and time. It's being taught by the great theologians and speakers of our day. Um, All of that said... I want to say at the beginning here, a lot of what the controversy about is about when we talk about Reformed theology is non-essential. Regardless of where the lines are drawn, we will spend eternity uh, with people on both sides of this line. Okay, I'm not condemning anybody here this morning. I'm not condemning the Catholic Church here this morning. There are Catholics that you and I will spend eternity with, and there are some that won't likewise with Presbyterians, likewise with people from non-denominational churches, and likewise some people in this room. That said, um, that's the first reason why I think we need to have this conversation. The second reason is is that's why this church exists. There was a point in time where we looked around and we thought in our locality here in the East Mountains, there really isn't especially here in the North North 14 corridor, a Reformed church, a church that holds a a loud, vocal, and confident uh, Reformed view. And we thought that is reason enough alone to plant a church. Grant was behind this. This was Grant's thinking. This was Grant's thought. So we exist in in great part uh, as a Reformed church, and that is something that makes us very distinct in the East Mountain area, the North 14 corridor especially, from other churches that are around here. Uh, we don't make excuses for being reformed. Um, we we think it is the right place to be. Lastly, what the last reason I'm, I want to do this? When Grant got, how old is Grant? Four, five. Forty-four or 45 years ago. <laughs> okay. Uh, we were in a Presbyterian church that practiced infant baptism, and me coming from a Catholic background, I was probably cool with that. Uh, my wife, coming from a Baptist background, uh, probably wasn't cool with that. And, but we were going to baptize Grant because that's what the church did. And so we went to the pastor there and we said, we want to baptize Grant, but can you ex- talk us through this infant baptism thing and tell us about it? And so on the Sunday that the pastor baptized Grant, he preached on infant baptism. And he laid out for the church why we believe and why we do infant baptism and the history of it. And then what he would do, subsequent to that, every time he baptized an infant in the church, he took that sermon in the form of a little cassette. We had these things called cassettes back then. And he would give that to the family of the child that he was baptizing so that they would have a right understanding about infant baptism and what was going on there. So it was kind of a position statement on infant baptism. And so my third reason for doing this is I think we need a white paper, a position paper, or something. And this is what I intend to do this morning. Because it says in our online, uh, on our statement of faith, that we, have, we hold to a Reformed theology. And we adhere in the main to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'll explain a little bit more to you in a minute. And so that's there on the page. We put that right up front. We want people to know who visit here, who come here. This is, this is our dis- something distinct about this church, if you should come here. But that begs the question that gets asked here over and over he- again here is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Reformed church? And so I, I want us to have something. So what I'm going to give you this morning is way more than you can digest, but it will be in the annals of our sermon uh, database, it'll be there. And you can go back to it anytime you want. If somebody asks you why you go to a Reformed church, it'll be there for you. So I'm going to give you a lot of information. It's going to be hard to take notes because I'm going to spew. But nevertheless, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and lock the doors. Don't let anybody out. I'm going to start with some history. One thing that might help you if you do take notes is uh, I'm going to give you years as things go and keeping things in order might, might help you to come back, back to this. <coughs> why do we use the word Reformed at all? Why, why don't we call it some other kind of theology? Why don't we call it Presbyterian theology or Protestant theology? Why Reformed theology? Well, uh, Martin Luther in 1517, he nailed 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. I think most of you know something about that. And in those 95 theses, most of it, that, that was kind of a routine thing to do. It wasn't an extraordinary thing. He wasn't trying to make a statement. Uh, back then, he had a lot of debates, especially with this one guy named Erasmus, but he was there at the school, and he taught, and, they would, and he, would, he would list. These are some things I'd like to discuss, and the, the thesis were accusations against the Roman Catholic Church, things that he thought was wrong and should be fixed. The primary, most of it's pretty innocuous to you and I today, the one that really stands out is he talked about indulgences. The Catholic Church was selling indulgences, trying to raise money to build the Vatican complex there at St. Peter's Square that exists today. If you want ever visit, if you've ever been there, that was paid in, in some part, uh, no small part, by uh, indulgences being sold. And uh, Martin Luther thought you know, that this was wrong, and so that was part of his 95 Thesis. And so, uh, but that isn't where the Reformation started. And we have to understand the Reformation to understand what Reformed theology is and what it's about. So let's go back a little bit in history before Martin Luther and and let's see what was going on that precipitated this whole thing. Uh, It turns out, uh, in actually uh, the year 313, the Emperor Constantine, Roman Emperor Constantine, declared uh, Roman uh, Christianity to be the official church religion. So, and so from that point forward, we have the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, in the early years, uh, the, the Catholic Church, uh, for whatever reason, Constantine did that. That's kind of a muddy area. But the church did exist, did uh, survive, did do well, uh, was a functioning, a, efficient body in some measure. Then um, we get to the Dark Ages. And uh, during the Dark Ages, prior to the Reformation, Uh, the Catholic Church went south. And the Roman Catholic Church admits this today. This is a very dark time in history for the Roman Catholic Church. The the papacy began to be used as a political office. It was sometimes sold. Sometimes it was given to somebody to create a political alliance between two countries. There was even times when there was more than one pope in place, and nobody really knew who the bottom line was because different people had declared different people the pope. Not only that, the clergy itself was corrupt. Uh, The clergy uh, had its thumb on people, it uh, exercised its authority, it wielded its uh, uh, authority uh, like a bludgeon, like a hammer. A lot of the priests were uh, unfaithful to their vow vow of celibacy. Uh, There were many illegitimate children birthed by priests, and there were some priests living openly, you know, in uh, in, uh, relationships, sexual relationships. So it was a bad time for the Catholic Church. So uh, we're in this dark period, and I'm going to start throwing names at you now, and uh, hopefully you'll recognize some of the names. I'm trying to lead credence and lead, give you a, a, a track record of, of how this thing progressed. So let's start with John Wycliffe. Two hundred years before Luther nailed his thesis up on the door, uh, Wycliffe was a priest. Wycliffe was actually uh, declared by the Roman Catholic Church eventually to be a heretic. And the the Catholic Church disavowed him. What were his sins? Uh, Number one, he translated the Bible, the Latin version of the Bible that they had then into English. Why was that a sin? That was a sin because the Roman Catholic Church was doing everything in Latin, was doing everything behind the scenes. People weren't allowed to know what was going on. And even when I went to a Catholic school in the 60s, and whenever that was, 50s and 60s, uh, we were not allowed to read the Bible. We were not allowed to have Bibles in our homes. The, the Bible w- was, was kept under cloud, and to translate it into something that people could read was a grievous sin. Not only that, uh, he, uh, he questioned why the priesthood were treated any higher than anybody else. He didn't think they should wear garments. He's the one that initiated the phrase, the priesthood of believers. He read Scripture as he translated and he said, you are the priesthood. You are the priesthood of believers, as clearly stated in Scripture. He read that there. As he translated, he read what what was there. He also rejected the Pope's authority. He says, the only authority I will ascribe to is that of Scripture. He was on sola scriptura way before the Reformers were, and he rejected the Pope. And he did one final thing that you're really not going to believe this. He allowed congregational singing (laughs) during Mass. Okay, Those were his sins. And he had a compatriot. He had another guy, a partner in crime, a contemporary by by the name of Johannes Huss. We know him more often as John Huss. I hope that's a name familiar to some of you. Huss, like uh, Wycliffe, was considered a heretic by the church and his thing that he was against 200 years before Martin Luther was the selling of indulgences. Martin Luther didn't invent the fight against indulgences. There was corruption, and there was an effort within the clergy of the Catholic Church prior to Martin Luther um, that got got the ball rolling here. The Catholic Church was in need of reform. Then something significant happened in 1450. That's about 65 years before Luther posted his things at Wittenberg, and that was the invention of the printing press by some guy named Gutenberg. I think that should be a familiar name to most of you. The thing that made that significant is a guy named William Tyndale. William Tyndale, uh, 1494 to 1536, he translated again into English, 14 books from the Old Testament, and the entire New Testament. Again, a grievous offense against the Catholic Church. Let me back up a minute, the grievous offense part. We talk about Wycliffe died of natural causes. He was a heretic. He died of natural causes and was buried. Huss, on the other hand, was burned at the stake. For challenging the Pope's authority, for saying that the clergy was corrupt... He was burned at the stake. Wycliffe died of natural causes, but then they dug him up and burned his bones. These were huge, grievous offenses to the existing uh, clergy of the day, to the papacy of the day. Tyndale, 1494, 1536, translated most of the Old Testament and and all of the uh, New Testament into English in defiance of the Pope. He was burned at the stake for doing so. What made Tyndale's sin more grievous to the church, though, than that of Wycliffe and Huss? It was the printing press. When Wycliffe translated things into English, he had to carve it in on a board, and that could not be reproduced. When Tyndale did it, the printing press was in play, and it went everywhere. And the Catholic Church had a major problem on their hands. Everything that they had been teaching and doing out of the the Pope's traditions and whatever was now being exposed in the hands of everyone and common man in their own languages. The movement that started with Wycliffe, Huss, and Tyndale has now on steroids. It was going berserk. The reform the attempted reform of the Catholic Church was in progress. Again, the the reformers were trying not to start a new religion. Their intent was to reform the corruption and the and the abuses that they saw there. They were translating things into their own vernacular, in France French, in German Germany, okay, in England English, and. Uh, Wherever these reformers lived, they would take the Latin text, or the, mostly from the Greek and Hebrew text, the original text, and they would translate this stuff. They developed at the time a set of hermeneutics, principles of interpretation. This is really important. They said, they read, as they read this document called the Bible, they said, this is a history book. There's historical narrative here. Things really happen. We need to read this, not as individual stories, but as a history book. And we, and they discovered as they read and, and, and translated this, grammar. This thing is, is all written by grammar. When these guys were inspired to write, they wrote grammatically correct sentences. We need to take the words in their meaning, in their grammatical meaning, in their grammatical context with nouns, verbs, past tense, pre- the whole thing. That's the way the book was, was presented. And they realized this has to be read with grammatical rules. Words mean what the words mean. This is important that they had done this. As they did this and they built this theology, what the reformers, the translators came to was what we call today a covenant theology or a reformed theology. Those were the terms a covenant theology or a reformed theology. Those of you that come to some of the things I teach know I like to use the word covenant theology. I use it a lot. If I ask a question and you answer Jesus or covenant theology, you'll be right 50% of the time. So how did we get so far adrift? How did this happen? The the translators and and all these reformers from different cultures and locations and and whatever, they they said, "How, how did this happen? I liken this to, uh, do you all know what the Freedom of Information Act is? FOIA? F-O-I-A? There, there we have laws in our country that say that public things that happen publicly have to be done publicly, they can't be done behind closed doors, they have, have to be accessible to the public, freedom of information. To me, when the Gutenberg Press came out and, and this documents came in, this was the, the very first Freedom of Information Act res, re, results. All of a sudden, we were getting to see, humanity was getting to see the real words, the real truth, the real doctrines of Scripture, not what they had been fed to believe. In our government, you file a a FOIA request, and what happens? You wait a year. You wait two years. They send you one or two documents. You take them to court. Two or three years later, after the election and the information is no longer relevant, you get the information. This is exactly what was going on with the Catholic Church. They were suppressing the information by suppressing the, pressing, uh, 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 the, the printing of the Bible. They didn't want the truth out. But it got out, didn't it? What a miracle. Then they asked themselves, how can we keep this from happening again? We've got to stop this. So here's what they did. Now, let's go way back in history. Let's go back. If we go to Constantine 3, 13, and the Roman Catholic Church is, is initiated, and the Catholic Church is going on, what did they do with controversies? When there was, was something that people couldn't agree on, they would call a church council. They had many church councils. There are seven big ones that we would make a lot of note of. The, they happened in Nicaea, Chalcedon, uh, Ephesus, and Constantinople. Some of them, those locations had a couple of them. We dealt with, the church councils came together and they, and they dealt with like what is the meaning of the Trinity? How should we understand the Trinity? How about the deity of Christ? Was He God and man? Was He just God? Was He just man? Icons in the church, are we allowed to have icons in the church or hanging on the walls? Or? They dealt with the controversies of the day and, and they made, they made defining documents, defining final decisions on how we will understand the Trinity, how we will understand the humanity and deity of Christ. And that worked for a, a while, and up until the six or 700s when those councils met, that's how these issues of controversy were settled. Now then, how, the Reformers asked themselves, we have all these controversies about what's the right way to understand this and that and the other thing, and who's in charge and who isn't in charge, and is it Scripture alone or not? What, what they began to do, they would take the scriptures in their own translations, in their own location, in their own country, and they would create defining documents. In 1580, in Germany, the Lutherans got together and they created a document called the Augsburg Confession. And this document took, took all of scripture and all of the ideas and doctrines in scripture and made it simple for the common man to understand and be able to read. Between 1561 and 1610, we we get the three forms of unity. This this happened in Germany and the Netherlands. We end up with the the three forms are the Belgic Confession in France, the Heidelberg Catechism, Germany and Netherlands, and the Canons of Dort happened in Holland at Dort. And uh, (coughs) what those documents put together was what they thought as a whole the Bible said. I'm going to talk about the Council of Dort here in a minute. It's going to be the big document of, of what I want to pass on to you guys today. In England, the Presbyterians wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, which still stands today. Very few things in it are challenged today. Uh, they had some statements in there about the Pope being the Antichrist, but you know, and that's fallen by the wayside. But for the most part, the Westminster Confession of Faith has withstood the, t- the, the time. Uh, likewise, um, the Savoy Confession of Faith. The people who weren't Presbyterians but were Congregationalists, they took the Westminster Confession of Faith, and rather than putting elders as leaders, they made er everything by congregational decision. That's the only change they made. Other than that, that whole denomination accepted the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, In 1689, we have the London Confession of Faith, again in England. This is where the Baptists took their shot at it. Because there was one thing in the, in the Westminster Confession of Faith that they couldn't deal with, they wanted to change, and, and that had to do with infant baptism. Okay? Other than that, Baptists, uh, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, they all took basically the same format, they found the same principles a- as they translated them. So what I'm trying to point, let me summarize, the I'm, point I'm trying to make is whether you were in France, Germany, Netherlands, England, and you were had, had the Greek manuscripts and things in front of you, you would make a confession of faith. And this really unbelievable, incredible, phenomenal coincidence happened. Different places, different men, different times, different locations, different confessions all said the same thing. The differences between the confessions was minute. It wasn't word-for-word word dictation. But the major doctrines that are issues we consider essential today, they all had complete agreement on. All right? We call that Reformed theology. It was documented. What they made was documents that settled the issues that were were there. Now then, 1610. Let's go back just a minute uh, to the council at Dort. (coughs) <coughs> a lot of the controversy that you and I have today, or we receive today about being Calvinists, comes, or was settled uh, definitively at this council. Um, <coughs> there was a guy, uh, John, John Calvin, had a son-in-law named Theodore Beza. Calvin was dead. Theodore Beza had some students. One of Theodore Beza's students was a guy by the name of Jacob Arminius. All right. Jacob Arminius took exception to some of what Theodore Beza was teaching him. As a matter of fact, he had five ideas that he thought Beza had received from Calvin that were wrong. And so Jacob Arminius gathered people together who who thought like him and he demanded a church council to deal with this. All right? He had five points that he wanted dealt with. Once again in history, a church council is called to settle the issue. In summary, at at this point, what we've gone, what I'm, what I'm taking you through is from Wycliffe through all the, Re- the Reformation history, we've got Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, Zwingli, all these guys who are the central core of the Reformation ha- are, are part of writing these confessions and they're all in agreement on the basics of, of theology. <clears throat> what, um, what the council at Dort let me put it this way, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at right here. The thoughts that the Armenians challenge, the five thoughts, are sometimes called the five points of Calvin, although Calvin's dead. And actually, they're the five points of all of Reformed theology from France, Europe, everywhere. Okay? So to call it Calvinism to begin with is a misnomer. This is Reformed theology. This is what all of the Reformers all the way through agreed on. They agreed on much more, but these five points were in the whole of what they agreed on. All right? So, at its basest level, I want um, You hope you can track me with this. What was the Protestant Reformation about? What, was, what were the five central issues of the Protestant Reformation? Number one, sola scriptura. Not the Pope. Scripture alone. Sola fide. We are saved by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church was teaching. The Pope was the authority. No, sola scriptura. The Catholic Church was teaching we're saved by grace and by works. By, you know, by faith and by works. No, the Reformist says no, just by faith. The Catholic Church was teaching that we had the man had had the ability to believe he wasn't totally depraved and the, the reformer says no we are saved by grace alone if you believe it's because god has come and done something to you that you did not deserve you did not earn you have no right to the reason is because of the work of christ christ alone sola christus christ's death on the cross finished everything it's not by indulgences that you're saved. It's not by works that you're saved. It's by Christ alone. And lastly, God put this whole thing together in this order for his glory, by <laughs> glory. That's what the Reformation was about. It's really, really important to realize those fundamentals that we take for granted here today, saved by grace alone, by faith alone, sola scriptura, we take those so much for granted. People were being burned at the stake for, for contending for such doctrines. Now then, if I am Reformed and it, it, at its basis level, I am subscribing to the five solos. When it says in our statement of faith if we are Reformed, we are saying the five solas mean a great deal to us. We live and die by those five solos. Now then, I'm going to read this to you because I want to say my words right. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to mention some of the specifics of the Reformation faith specifically those around which there's much controversy. See, we don't have a lot of controversy around the five solas, do we? Nobody's telling people not to come to our church because we adhere to the five solas. I want to be clear that although there were th- the five solos were mentioned uniformly in the Confessions, they were not the central focus. I'm going to talk to you now about the five things that Jacob Arminius took to the council at Dort. These five things were not the central issue of the Protestant Reformation. The far, We're going to do this under TULIP, right? T-U-L-I-P, we'll get you there in a minute. TULIP was not the issue of the Protestant Reformation. The SOLAS were the, were the, the issue in the Re, uh, Protestant Reformation. But when they wrote their whole confession out, they didn't just address the five SOLAS, the Augsburg Confession, the Westminster Confession, the Savoy. It included all of Scripture, all of the doctrines of Scripture. And so we take from all of those doctrines of Scripture five points that Jacob Arminius wanted to argue about. And he took it to the church council, and they ruled against him. All right? And they declared him a heretic. What were those five issues? We call them sometimes by the acronym TULIP, but that even has become... They've been labeled as the five points of Calvin because of Calvin's link to... Theodore Beza, but it was really the five points of the Protestant Reformation. Five of five additional points of the Protestant Reformation is really what they were. We call them today more frequently the doctrines of grace. Tulip doctrines of grace. We're talking about the same thing. Five points of Calvinism. A misnomer. T U L I P. T total depravity. Man is totally depraved. He, he is not able to save himself in any ways. He's dead in his sin. Jacob Arminius argued, no. There's this thing called prevenient grace, and the Holy Spirit comes in, and gives you enough grace that you can make a decision for Christ on your own. You, you have to weigh it out and decide for yourself. The, the council at Dort said, no, that's not how it works. The way this works is you are dead in your sin. You are dead in the doornail. You are dead as Lazarus, and he brought you back, and you had nothing to do with it. Unconditional election. God made a decision about you before time. He predestined you. He knew in a moment in time you would hear the gospel. You would respond to it unconditionally, not because you're a good person, not because you had prevenient grace. Unconditionally, you would respond. That's what Jacob Armenia said. No, it was based on a, a foreknowledge, a condition that he looked out in time, saw that I would listen, make a decision for Christ, and do it. That's not what the Scriptures say. Counselor Dort said that anyone when the Bible says when we look at it with grammar, grammar and history and everything there. You were saved unconditionally. You were dead. L, limited atonement. Christ died on the cross for the elect, for those before time that he, did, he predetermined it before time. The council of Dort said that's the way it went. He only died for the elect. He didn't die for those. Read John 17 sometimes, and you'll see Jesus' prayer to the great, great high priestly prayer before he died. He prays in there for those the Father gave him. I do not pray for the world. And grammatically, that's what the text says. Irresistible grace. When the Holy Spirit comes, you don't want to resist him because by grace, the gift of grace has been given to you. And you run to it. You don't run away from it. You don't resist it. Grace is an irresistible. Is not a, it's irresistible. And lastly, those God saves, He keeps. The perseverance of the saints. Preservation of the believer. One saved, all was saved. Any way you want to look at it. You cannot change your mind. God has acted in your life, and that's what Scripture says. Now, let me, let me just say this. Are those tough? You bet. You bet they're tough. Is this how you and I would have done it? If we were putting it together, would, he, would, we, would we have given somebody a chance to make a decision for Christ, or would we have just done it? I'm not telling you this is easy theology, but I'm telling you, grammatically, historically, this is what Scripture says. And all of the church councils, all of the confessions, all of them are in agreement. If I let the words say what they say, this is what it says. Reformed theology recognizes that God is sovereign. And He doesn't ask us to agree with His sovereign decisions, but He has revealed some of those decisions to us. The question before us is, will we allow God to be sovereign or not? Then what happened? You got the Reformation. You got all these councils. You got all these confessions. Then what happened in history? The next generation were the Puritans, the guys we all think were were sexually repressed, and uh, you know wore too many clothes and were stodgy, and that is not who they were. They appeared to be sexually repressed based on the culture they were living in which was immoral and out of control and everything else, but they were a group of people who believed the Scriptures, who believed what the Scriptures said, who lived their faith out. They catechized their kids so their kids knew and were safe and and wouldn't fall into heresy or bad doctrines. They loved to meet in church hours at a time. They had a fantastic work, work ethic. They were philanthropists even outside of their own community. This was a great body of people that we totally have the wrong idea about. Read some books. John Owen, John Bunyan, William Perkins, Richard Baxter, Richard Sibbs, Hugh Latimer died died for his faith. J.C. Ryle. These guys all adopted whole cart reformed theology in, in its purest Calvinistic form. The Puritans embraced it. They fought for it. There were wars, you guys, Puritans against the Anglicans. People died. The greatest Puritan, American Puritan that we know, greatest theologian on American soil is a guy named Jonathan Edwards. He's the guy that has given credit for the Great Awakening. An absolute Puritan, an absolute Calvinist, Reformed theological person. After the, the Puritans, B.B. Warfield, George Whitfield, the Great Awakening guy. Charles Spurgeon, hardcore Reformed theology. Present day, John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Graham Goldsworthy, Edmund Clowney, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, John Piper, Al Mohler, head of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Did you know that the, the two of the last four presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention were reformed? This movement is growing. These are solid people. When I hear people say you can't be a Calvinist, in their terms, and be a Christian, it's an untenable position. Do we condemn the Puritans? Do we condemn the names I just gave you, the present day names? Spurgeon. When you say you can't be a Calvinist, you can't be reformed in your theology, you're condemning these great people. If we live in a forest, these are the redwoods, and we live in their shade. And they got it right. Because they let the Bible say what the Bible says. The Reformers embraced the whole counsel of God, Acts 20. Not the pieces they liked, not the pieces they could understand and agreed with, they embraced, and taught, and were encouraged to teach the whole counsel of God. Can we be argumentative with God? Because we don't get it. And some of the stuff that's in Scripture is too hard. Let me read, uh, read from you a passage of Scripture about a guy who challenged God and His fairness. From Job, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the world, world and said, Who is it that darkens my counsel without words and without knowledge? Dress for action, Job, and I will question you, and, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? on what were its bases sunk. Who laid the cornerstone when the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Took Job to his knees. When we question the sovereignty of God because we don't agree with it, we don't like it, and we don't think it's fair, we are Job. And God eventually will take us to our knees. Cedar Springs Church is a reformed church. And we will teach and preach the whole counsel of God. We will not make an excuse for it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us. We pray that you show us how to accept your sovereignty and to take joy in it, to revel in it. To know that by your sovereign grace, I have been saved. Each of us has been saved. That's a celebration. Nothing there to question. Give us a confidence, Lord, in the word as it's written and what the words say. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. Amen.